Well, I'm going to kind of assume here that you have a, a little bit of a sense of what we talk about sometimes of the put-off, put-on principle, the replacement principle. We'll, uh, just, I'm going to just go to Colossians 3 here with you. Ephesians is a place that we could go to, but I think Colossians would illustrate this, this nicely. Now, the notes that I've read some verses from you today are from the, um, as I said earlier, the NIV 84. Um, I grabbed on the way out uh, yesterday morning my CSB, Christian Standard Bible, and many of you have an ESV, so we have a whole mutt here of Bible translations going on here. So I'll probably read a little bit from the, the, from the CSB. Uh, Colossians 3. I just want you to see a big picture flow here. So you'll notice how he begins with, in verse 1, an identity statement, what theologians call an indicative, a statement of fact, that you've been raised with Christ and seek things above. And verse 2, something to do, set your minds on things above. And then verse 3, 4, or because you've died. And so throughout the whole passage, as I'll just let your eyes glance down to that, you have this interplay between who we are, or, or what Christ has done, or whose we are, perhaps, and then what we should do in light of that. And as he moves into verse 5, therefore, okay, because of this identity that we have, then we're to put to death certain things, and you see that list. And there's a lot of things to put to death here. Put to death, verse 5, or different translations, I realize. Verse 8, put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander. Don't lie, verse 9. Because you have put on the new self. So you're, you already are new, and yet you're to continue to uh, put on new things. You are new, and you need to continue to renew yourself as you go forward there. And then we come to this beautiful picture of put on in verse 12. As God's chosen ones, holy and, and loved, dearly loved, put on. Clothe yourselves. It's a clothing metaphor. Strip away. Take off the old grave clothes of your dead life and rise with Christ in the resurrection and put on the garments that would be befitting of a risen person. And so you have that list. So throughout the Bible, and particularly in Paul's letters, you just see this dynamic of put off the old and put on the new and continue to grow in Christ and uh, have your minds changed, renewed by God's word. So what are some of those attitudes, some of those actions? Some of these words we'll talk about here are attitudes, some are actions, some are both and. But they all come together with this heart that's facing towards Christ. So let's walk through a number of these here. Uh, the first one is contentment. Contentment. And Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, a passage with which you're probably familiar. Verse 10 of chapter 4, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Paul's going to repeat that verb. It's a, it's a synonym verb. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned, different verb, but a similar, uh, it's a synonym. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. The mindset here of Paul is similar to the mindset he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he says that our goal in life is to please God, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. 
whether this or whether that. It's the same paradigm of thinking that Paul brings here. Whether this, whether that. Now in 2 Corinthians 5, whether this, meaning I'm going to stay at home in this body and continue to live in this earth, or whether I will go and be away from this body to be with the Lord. And Paul has a decided preference there. He'd rather be with the Lord. But in God's providence, he's going to, at this point, continue on to live in this body. But whichever the situation, he can't control it. The same dynamic here in this passage. Whether he's well-fed or hungry, circumstances that he can't control, whether in poverty or in plenty, he can't control these things. Now, where am I going with this with anger? I hope it's pretty obvious. Whether your husband treats you nicely or treats you poorly. God wants you to learn how to please God and how to learn contentment. How to learn to be content. What's going on with anger? It's an expression of discontentment. I'm not getting what I want and I intend to let you know that I'm not getting what I want and I'm going to say things to you Or I'm going to pull away from you and avoid you because I'm not getting what I want, because I'm not content. I haven't learned contentment. So if you think of the throne diagram that we used earlier today, think of the letters A, B, C there. Before we get to the staircase with the sprouting of legs and the walking up the the steps, what you have there is a a picture of contentment. Paul's learn contentment. You notice here, too, that it's something you learn I don't think you're going to put off anger overnight. I don't think there's going to be anything that's going to zap you. Now, God does that. And we all have heard testimonies that are true of people who have just miraculously changed. It does happen. But it's not the norm and certainly not something that you want to expect. And you really can't expect that of your spouse or your friends that they're going to change that way. Honestly, when I've done seminars like this, I think one of the things that happens is there's high expectations, not just for you, but for your spouse or your friend that you've brought. And uh, just like in any sermon, (laughs) I've been guilty of doing it as a recipient of messages, thinking, boy, so-and-so really needed to hear that, right? Well, I'm saying to you that uh, even this kind of thing, you've got to learn to be content, even if your spouse doesn't change or your friend doesn't change, or your son or daughter, or your parents or whoever else that you love who's here in this building today, and you want them to grow and change. And so whether he or she changes or doesn't change, whether they treat me nicely or poorly, I have learned, says Paul, to be content. But there's something else you have to see here, and it is uh, verse 13. Uh, Many of us, I think, have treated verse 13 as a kind of separate maxim of Christian life. Uh, I can do all things. I can leap tall buildings spiritually in a single bound. Uh, This whole Superman thing based on this. But, But I think what's important you realize here is the everything in verse 13, I think in its context, is what verse 11 and 12 are about. What I've, what Paul has learned to do is he's learned contentment. How? He tells us, through him who gives me strength. You and I need the strength of Jesus Christ to be able to handle a provocation when that person treats us a certain way that we don't want to be treated. It's a beautiful picture here of the way Paul wants us to to understand that it is all because of the Lord Jesus Christ the power of, of the gospel. Um, and so there's that, that, there's that song. I don't know who to credit. I don't know who wrote it, but I just have the, the chorus here. And right now, in the good times and bad, you are on your throne. You are God alone. That's Philippians 4, 13, I think, in action. In good times and in bad It's God who gives us strength. Learning contentment. There's a sense in which this is maybe first in 
the way to think about what uh, an unangry heart or a non-sinfully angry heart looks like. It's a heart that's learned to be content because of what God has given us. I have everything I need. Mary, Mary got it right as she sat at the feet of Jesus Christ. A second action here, attitude in terms of our heart prayer. Uh, we've already observed from James 4, I made a comment about prayer. I'll say another thing here. So you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So the two questions that emerge from this, first of all, are, are we praying? Are we asking for change? Because the things that we often want are good things. We want our spouse to treat us a certain way. We want our kids to act a certain way. We want our boss. We want our coworkers. We want our church members. We want our pastors, church leaders. We want them. Are we praying for those things? And if so, with what motive? Is it for a self-centered motive or because it's best? So are you praying for your friend or your spouse to change because it's best for your spouse? Do I want my kids, if they were angry with each other, to learn to uh, stop being angry and learn to love each other so that they would please the Lord God or so that I wouldn't be interrupted for another time again, the umpteenth time? What's the motivation there? And so there's always two things in the art of prayer, right? There's the asking of what seems to be a wise and a good thing to ask for. And maybe this is where friends can help us and one another and our pastors, our church leaders, our small group leaders can help us what to pray for. But then always concurrently, there's the aspect of submitting that to the will of God. I find it helpful to make a slight distinction between the words or the two different words, trust and entrust. Let me suggest to you a way to think about prayer and trusting at this point. We trust God to be and do what God says he will be and do toward you. But see, God hasn't promised me in his word that my spouse or my boss is going to change. Now, you're married to a Christian. Yeah, eventually God will do that, right? You and your spouse will be glorified. Praise God. We look forward to that final day. But until then... There's no guarantee that the spouse is going to change those bad patterns. And so we entrust those things that are not clearly written. But I trust God to provide me with strength. I know that's his will because he says he will. That's a guarantee. I bank on that. I, can't, I don't have the guarantee that my spouse will change or my employer will change. So I trust God to be and do what God says he's going to be and do. His word tells me. And I entrust people and things and situations and health, the lump, whatever it is, I entrust that into God's hands. Because I don't have the guarantee he's going to change that situation, not in this life. Does that make sense? Trust versus entrust. It might, you might find that verbiage just helps you clarify. Father, I'm trusting you right now to provide wisdom on how to handle this job situation. And I'm entrusting the job situation into your hands to do whatever you want to do. And I will learn contentment, whatever it is, with your help. Third is a mega theme that we could spend not only a whole session, but a whole day on. Patience, forbearance, and forgiveness. Um, all sorts of good passages we can think about here. Ephesians 4, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You know the structure somewhat of Ephesians. You've got chapters 1 through 3. With not, There's only one command in the first three chapters, and it's a command to remember what you once were, which is not really a command of doing anything. It's more of a, a mental command. Remember the gospel. And then chapter 4, there's this shift. And what's interesting here is that the first thing that he stresses in the shift in chapter 4, verse 2, uh, is to be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another. Uh, the life worthy of the calling, that takes us back to chapter 1, verse 19, around there, 
where we have the calling of the salvation work that God has done for us. And now what happens? Uh, in, in light of that calling, what's the first thing he says? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Colossians 3. Bear with each other. Verse 13, and forgive whatever grievances. Uh, scholars have defined, tried, you know, what is the difference between forbearing and forgiving? I don't know if there's a major difference. Though what my takeaway has been that I forbear, at least in terms of practice, things that are not necessarily sinful, like the toothpaste tube thing, or Jeff, right? Yeah, the, the big C thing. I learned to forbear that. He's my brother. That's not sinful to be a Packers, I mean, to Bears fan. Uh, there's a lot of things we just learn to put up with. We're just patient. That's a great word, by the way. I hope we don't lose it in our English translations in the decades to come. Forbearance. To bear with someone. To forbear. What a great term. What a great term we really need. I want to I reclaim that word and make sure we learn to talk about learning to forbear. And then forgive when there's been perhaps an offense against us. So many passages we could think about here. But Proverbs 19.11, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. It's a glorious thing when God has overlooked our offenses. And, and then when we come into that new covenant time where he's not just overlooked them, but now he's actually punished them in the person of, of Christ. And, and it's, it's a glorious thing when we learn to overlook others' sins that we don't confront unless it's wise and, and needed. Um, this is a beautiful picture. This is something to strive for. Lord, help me to be a, a woman, a man who is a willing and quicker to overlook these things. It's okay. God, my soul is safe with you. I don't have to get my way in these situations there. Trying to be selective today in what we think about. Uh, Matthew 18, of course, that great parable. The great parable of forgiveness. Probably the greatest parable Jesus has taught on forgiveness. The man who owes that uh, master, a ser uh, the servant who owes the master, servant number one. Uh, unpayable debt. It's, hyper it's, it's, it's an exaggeration. It's hyperbole. Uh, Millions of dollars, a billion dollars maybe in our economy, uh, uh, six billion some as estimated, just unpayable debt. And what does he do? That man who's been forgiven, he, he pleads with the Lord to forgive, the master to forgive, and he forgives. What does he do? He goes finds a fellow servant who owes $6,000 maybe, 8000 depending on how you want to work the numbers in our economy today. A significant debt, if you owed me 6000 I want a repayment. I appreciate you paying me back the 6000 I loaned you. But, but think of a billion dollars I've been forgiven. And so for me, the takeaway of a passage like that is a very simple takeaway. No one has ever sinned against me as much as I've sinned against God. Do you believe that? When you believe that, it does affect the anger issues you have towards other people. I don't know when my debt started in practice. I know that I came out from the womb as a sinner already. I'm absolutely sure that when I was playing with another two-year-old and we both had blocks in front of us, and that two-year-old or three-year-old started stacking a few blocks, I'm absolutely sure I knocked those blocks down. I'm sure I did. Have you ever read Augustine, the Confessions of St. Augustine? It's, it's kind of like almost hilarious the way he talks about his infancy if it wasn't so true and so serious. Description of his sinfulness as an infant. Now, he doesn't remember it, but he's just watching other infants. We come out this way. We come out with this grabbing one in our way. I am absolutely sure that in first grade I didn't do my homework to the glory of God. 
I don't think I was a Colossians 3, do my work heartily as unto the Lord kind of person. I don't think I was. I do remember stealing money from mom's purse, probably when I was like, you know, 8 or 9 or 10 or something like that. And uh, guys, you'll relate to this kind of thing. I was a sixth grader at a bus stop waiting for our school bus to come. And Ralph, who was in seventh grade, said something unkind to me. And I decked Ralph Fiore, a sixth grader with a seventh grader. How cool is that? How evil is that? And I won't go on into my high school years, okay, with sinfulness. But see, when I became a senior in high school, God, in one fell swoop, came to me and forgave all that. But see, at every point, it's cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. The debt is mounting. I've sinned against God. I'm 62. For 62 years, I've failed to love the Lord my God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. And I've failed to love my neighbor as myself. Maybe it's not been 62 for you. Maybe it's been 21. Maybe it's been 70 for some. Jesus Christ has forgiven us. This mountain. No one has ever sinned against me. As much as I've sinned against God. Now I said to you as we began today. I assume that in a group like this. There's going to be people who have had pretty atrocious things done. In your childhood or your teen years, some of you, I'm just sure of that. I don't have insider information, I'm just assuming, in a crowd like this. And this might be harder for you to really believe. But I would encourage you to really meditate on this. It will free you when you realize the great sin debt that God has forgiven you. Tim Keller tells a story. I'm going to use my version of of Keller, uh, of this story. I'm your neighbor. I'm out front doing some yard work. You have to leave for the day. You walk out your front door, and you're gone. A delivery truck pulls up to your house, next door to my house, and a delivery person brings a package to the door and rings the bell. And no answer and just rings a few times. And then what this person does is he takes the package away. And I say, sir, excuse me, um, can I help in some way? This is my friend next door. Well, yeah, someone needs to sign for it and someone needs to pay. There is a delivery charge here, cash on delivery thing, $4.95. Can I pay it? Yeah, Yeah, that's okay. All right. So I pay it. I signed for it. And uh, this is fictional because I'm not going to be working in my front yard all day. I hate yard work. <laughs> so, I, but I'm there and you come back and I'm still out there or I come out later and do some more work. And you go up to the door and you see a package and wow, a package. Oh, good. I'm kind of waiting for that. Oh, huh. There's a signature on it? Hey, Robert. Hey, Bob, is that you? Yeah, yeah, they brought the thing, they were going to take it away. Well, thank you, that's very kind of you. Sure, don't mention it, thanks. Great. That's what neighbors do. Now, the weeks go forward, however, and you begin to notice something, or you notice something that doesn't happen, or you get these billing statements in the mail, and you find that your credit cards are being paid. And you do maybe electronic things and banking, and you find out that your utilities are being paid. And you figure, what's going on here? I'm scared to ask. Maybe it's an error, but I, I don't want to like, get a lump sum at the end, so I need to find out. So you investigate, and what do you find? There's someone named Robert Jones. Hey, and the person says, it looks like they're your neighbor. They're on the same street as you. Now what do you do? All your credit cards, all your utilities, everything. Now what do you do? See me outside and say, hey, Bob, thanks for that. I don't think so. I think what you do is you march over to my house, you fall down at my feet, and you begin to clean my shoes, and you make me chocolate chip cookies for the rest of my life. And more. 
What's the difference between, hey, Bob, thanks, that's a good neighbor. You paid four I'll pay you back. And that. It's the price of the debt. So to the extent you think that Jesus helped you out, that Jesus, yeah, gave me a little help here along the way, and he, yeah, I'd made some mistakes, and he rectified them, and he forgave me, that's cool. That's the way you look at our Lord. But if you believe that no one has ever sinned against you as much as you've sinned against God, that there is an immense unpayable debt, cha-ching, 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 every day of your life. And that's what Christ has forgiven you for. It will change the anger problem. It's a beautiful parable our Lord tells us. Self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That ninefold fruit, and every one of those is calculated to be the opposite of the sinful anger that we have too often in our hearts. In fact, it is the contrast here, the fruit of the Spirit versus the works, or we could say the fruit, the outcome of the flesh. To the extent the Galatian Christians and you and I are allowing uh, our flesh, our remaining sin, to dominate us, to that extent we will produce uh, the anger responses that we've been talking about this morning. But the opposite is the love, joy, peace, and that whole list there. Self-control. I'll give you some of my favorite verses about self-control. From Proverbs, Proverbs 16. Better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. Better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. I take that to mean that I could sooner march with a, uh, myself and take over the state capital of Harrisburg than to have a reconciled relationship with someone. A man who can control his temper is stronger than an army. Do you believe that? Ask God to help you believe that. Proverbs 25, 28, here's the other one, very picturesque. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. In the ancient world, to have a, a city without walls meant enemies come through, robbers from other cities come, wild animals. There's no uh, animal control agencies here in the ancient world. No, serious danger comes when there's no walls. I was working with a couple, and the man was a very angry man. It's part of another church, good church, good pastor. Pastor worked with them and asked me to help out, and I spent some time with them. And he was just very angry, particularly with his daughter. His daughter was a 16, 17-year-old daughter. They had a lot of conflicts with each other. And uh, he asked him one day, asked her to, you need to clean your room and do some of these projects that we want you to do. And so she came home from school she went to her room, but she didn't do any of the cleaning. He comes home and uh, greets his wife and says, so has our daughter done that? He, she said, no, he hasn't. What does he do? He just races up the stairs and storms into her room. And as he's describing the detail of that, he, he was confessing his anger. As he's describing that angry response, I could see this, pack, this passage right before my eyes, and I explained it to him. Let me tell you what I'm seeing here. I'm seeing a man racing up the stairs with no city walls, out of control, and just being attacked by his flesh and by, by the world and Satan. It's an ugly scene here, this man who has no control. And then Proverbs 29, 11. Can I encourage you, particularly these passages here, this might be a really good takeaway for some of us, to, to seize one or two of these passages. One, one of the things that I want to kind of close with, with today is, is to be able to say that we have to have something that we can 
cling to in the, right in the situation. It's, it's that immediate prayer, Lord, help me, Lord, help me. But Lord, help me combined with a truth of God's word. And maybe this one. Proverbs 29, 11. A fool gives full vent to his anger. But a wise man keeps himself under control. As you're being ticked off, as you're being provoked, a fool gives full vent to his anger. Lord, help me right now. A fool gives full vent to his anger. A wise man keeps himself under control. A wise man keeps himself under control. God, help me be wise right now. Spirit, help me to be wise, to be self-controlled. Seize a passage like that. Uh, As you're entering the situation where it could be an angry setting, you're going into that meeting with coworkers or your boss. You're coming home from work. You're already at home, and your spouse is coming home from work. It works both ways. And you know that that the evenings when you come home, sometimes there's that fight going on. Grab hold of that passage. I've told many a mom, listen, I'm not into videos for your kids any more than you are, I'm sure. But if you have anger issues with your spouse, then listen, and they come home at 5.30. At 5.15, put your kid in front of a video for 15 minutes and open up Proverbs and pray and get your heart ready. Whatever you need to do to prepare your heart for that arrival of your husband. And the same thing. If it's, uh, if it, I don't necessarily mean to be gender specific, it has to be husband, wife, but here's, here's the, the, the husband coming home, the same thing. How about when you get to that point on the road, you're halfway home, you're 15 minutes from the house. How about that's your reminder, okay, leave the work behind, dump the work out the window, people have used that metaphor, get it off your mind and seize Proverbs 29.11. Fourth, uh, fifth, godly listening, godly speaking. How do we learn in the midst of those anger situations? How do we learn to control our tongue? All sorts of proverbs listed for you here again. One of my favorites is reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Reckless words pierce like a sword. Have you ever had this kind of metaphor? I'm not going to try to get off the stage, Pete, but I'm going to pretend you're close enough to me. And uh, I'm really angry at Pete here. And I say to you all, i got to get this off my chest. And what do I do? I get this off my chest and I speak a reckless word to him. What's, that, what's, what's the verse say? Reckless words pierce like a sword. The tongue of the wise brings healing. Whose chest do I care about at that point in time? I'm living for my chest. I got to get this off my chest. I got to get this anger out of me. I got to tell him off. And where's it landing? It's landing right in his chest. Reckless words pierce like a sword. The tongue of the wise. Tongue of the wise brings healing. Couple that with Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Which, where do you want this conversation to go? Do you want it to calm down or do you want to stir it up even more? Well, our words have a lot of power. Now, like every proverb, these are Proverbs. They're not absolute guarantees in this life. I mean, I think we see this perfectly filled in, in Jesus. But, but Jesus didn't experience this. And it's really going to be an ultimately a picture of the new heaven and earth, what we're longing for when this would be true. But, you know, Jesus didn't have the experience of speaking kindly and turn away wrath. No, he got killed. So, so don't, don't assume this is always going to be so. But the Spirit of God in writing these Proverbs here through the writers is telling us this is the way life tends to be. And it's something that you can learn to entrust into the Lord's hands, that if you speak this way, God often, he may not, but he often does have the other person respond differently. Uh, Proverbs 15.11. And then Proverbs, uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians 4, 
29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. According to the... I like the ESV on this one. I think it says, you know, according to their situation, or that fits the situation, that it may benefit those who listen. And so godly listening, Proverbs eighteen thirteen, he who answers a matter before listening, that is his folly and his shame. It's a foolish and shameful thing to try to speak before you listen to that other person. So this whole matter of Christ-like communication. Number six, biblical peacemaking and biblical problem solving. Blessed, said our Lord Jesus in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. They will, they will manifest the character of of God. That's the idea of a son of God here, is manifesting the character of God. Who is the great peacemaker? The God who, who has promised to bring final and ultimate shalom uh, to the people of God. The God who has brought peace between us and him already through the cross. The God who by his spirit is seeking to create relational peace within the body that we would learn to maintain, as Ephesians 4, 1 puts it, uh, to maintain the unity of the Spirit through that bond of peace. Make every effort, Paul says, that's Ephesians 4, 3, I should have said, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Romans 12, 18, uh, if it is po- I love the realism of this verse from Paul. If it is possible... So far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Paul recognizes that peace is not something you can unilaterally achieve. It requires the participation of the other party. But as much as it does depend on you, do all that you can do to bring about peace. And a large part of that is what we've been talking about all morning and now into this afternoon. Learning to deal with the anger issues. Learning to control the anger. If possible, live at peace. Live at peace with whom? Everyone. Paul doesn't give us an out there, does it? He, he wants us to pursue peace with everyone. That's a different seminar. I won't move further into that. I want to keep the focus on this internal anger issues here. Christ-like ministry, number seven. Christ-like ministry. It's a beautiful set of passages I've listed for us here. Mark 10.45 is our principle, isn't it? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If this problem we've talked about of anger today has to do with me wanting my rights and my needs and my demands, then Christ is our perfect example of the opposite. I just love that little word there, even. Like if anyone ever had the right to demand others to serve him, it would be Jesus Christ, the Lord, the King, the creator of people. But even he, even he did not seek to be served, but he sought to serve. What's that look like for you as you think about that situation we talked about earlier? Uh, When we're angry, we're just very self-centered, very self-focused. We're not focusing on others. Uh, The context of this is interesting, too, because here you have the disciples arguing with each other. A little earlier, who's the greatest? And now they're arguing. Uh, well, they're arguing the same kind of point here. But even Jesus did not have that mindset. Or think of John 13. There's something that's fascinating about John 13 that I want you to see. This is the scene of the foot washing. I'm, I'm going to read it. It's NIV 84. Uh, you're going to, if you have a version, you can you can turn to that as well. You'll see the same dynamic. The evening meal was being served. 
And the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Now, I want you to notice this interesting connection between verse 3 and verse 4. The ESV has it literally correct because it would say something like Jesus knowing. It's what in English we call a participle. Jesus knowing something, verse 4, he got up. The NIV just says Jesus knew, and then verse 4, so. However your version renders it, I want you to see the connection between verse 3 and verse 4. Verse 3 is a kind of, of, of truth about who we are. And verse 4, how we're to live. Jesus shows us this right here. What do we know about Jesus? Verse 3, I'll read it now. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus knew whose he was. Jesus knew where he came from, from the Father, from heaven, sent by the Father. Co-equal is a part of the Trinity. Sent by the Father to live on this life, to die and be raised for his people, to secure our salvation. And then he knew where he was going. He has his identity identity perfectly understood and grasped. The connection for verse 3 is vital to understand verse 4. So he got up and washed the feet of his disciples. If you understand who you are in Christ, you understand you are a son of the Father You're a co-heir with Jesus. You're seated with him already. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the mind of Christ. You have everything you need for life and godliness. His divine power, 2 Peter 1.3, has given us everything we need for life and godliness. You do not need your spouse to treat you a certain way, your boss to treat you a certain way, your kids to treat you a certain way. They're nice. They're gifts. Ask God for them. Praise God when they happen. But you don't need those things. Jesus knew who he was, and he served. Who did he serve? Those disciples. You know where Judas is at this point? He hadn't left yet. As we put together the chronology of all the events, Judas was there. Can we be really honest with each other today? I'll be honest with you. If I had the, the hands of a carpenter... Not wimpy hands of a pastor professor type, but I'm talking about working hands that some of you guys have out there. Some of you ladies do too, by the way. Strong hands. And you had the ankle in your hand of the man who's about to betray you unto death. What would you be tempted to do with that ankle? Enough said. What good turn deserves no. <laughs> That would be the temptation, wouldn't it? But there is our Lord Jesus, a man who's sinned against him and will continue to sin against him. What does he do? He washed his feet. Giving Judas Iscariot still one more opportunity and then one still to come with the breaking of the bread thing. Giving Judas one more opportunity to repent. Philippians 2, 4, we won't go into that right here. Well, no, I want to say something about it because there's something often missed. Philippians 2, let me take you there. Philippians 2. Verse 1, if. There are four or five. The, the last two can be combined into one. So you could say there's four or you could split the two into five. There are four or five truths here that are true for you and I in Jesus. If you have, this is one of those, in in, in the Greek you would talk about here that uh, this is what's called a, a condition of fact. This is not if, and I'm not sure it's so. This is Paul saying if, in a logical if, it is true. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and you do in your union with Christ. If any comfort from his love, and you do, If any fellowship with the Spirit, I've just said we're indwelled by that Spirit. 
If any, tenderness and compassion, these are actually terms that you would trace back and see in the Old Testament are salvific terms, salvation language here. If these things are true, then, dun, 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 verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, act the certain way. Prefer the other person. Give preference to the other person. Don't look out for your own interests. Look out for the interests of others. Be others centered. And then what does he do? So verse 1 is the foundation of salvation grace. And then verse 5, the glorious example of Jesus. The same one who I just mentioned before. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served. Well, here it is right here. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. How did he come to be served? To become a human. Become a man. And to die. And not just any kind of death but death on a shameful way on the cross. And he did it for me, he did it for you. Well, there's seven put-ons, any one of which would help us immensely as we deal with those anger issues. Why? We'll conclude our day and then we'll have Q&A. Why? Why must we put off sinful anger Why must we put on these Christ-like replacements? I'm going to give you three reasons. First, because this ruins our health, anger. It ruins our health physically. There's been some uh, studies that have confirmed what the Bible has already taught, the psychosomatic relationship between our heart and our body. If you want to read on this, read uh, Ed Welch's excellent book, very readable, Blame It on the Brain, where he gives a kind of a theology of how does the, the heart, the, 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 the mind, soul, spirit, and our physical body connect. Well, there's Proverbs uh, and Psalms, Proverbs 3, Proverbs 14, 29 through 30. Psalm 32, Psalm 38, where you see the connection between that and our, spirit, our physical health. Our spiritual health, too, here. Look what anger is doing to your, your, your spiritual health. Paul says in Acts 24, 16, I strive always to keep my conscience clear or clean before God. This anger problem is messing up your soul. 1 Peter 3 says... Uh, that um, husbands should live with their wives in an understanding way, lest their prayers be hindered. The whole issues of guilt, all messing up within your, your heart spiritually, ruining, damaging your health. Secondly, it destroys our relationships. It's hurting other people. Your anger is hurting other people. And let me say that some of our children are breathing the secondhand smoke of our anger. I'm not talking about cigarettes. I'm thinking about, you know how the cartoons did it when we were kids. Steam coming out of the ears. That's always the angry person would have the red face and the steam would come out. And our kids are breathing the steam of our anger. Our grandkids breathing the steam of our anger. Now, those two reasons, um, I, I, I studied at Westminster Seminary and, and did my, my research on anger through that institution. I read uh, a dozen books by Christian writers on anger, popular folks trying to integrate the Bible and the different psychologies out there. And this is what they said. It hurts your health. It hurts your, bo- it hurts your relationships. And that's as far as they went. Few, if any, would give you the third reason, which is the main reason, I believe, why we today need to be people who put away our anger. Yeah, it's going to hurt your health. Yeah, it's going to hurt your relationships. But let me tell you, number, number one reason, it's point three. Because it grieves our God. 
It grieves our God. It dishonors our God. It offends our God. Two passages of Scripture. We have them for you up on the screen here in just a moment. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. All right. A very powerful general truth here. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, verse 30 doesn't tell us, but I think verse 31 implies at least one way we grieve the Spirit of God. Verse 31 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Our failure to deal with our own anger issues is grieving the Spirit of God. Whatever it's doing to your spiritual and physical health, whatever it's doing to your relationships with other people, it's grieving the Holy Spirit of God. James 1 My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger creates colitis. For man's anger leads to hypertension. For man's anger creates a guilty conscience. For man's anger leads to divorce. Or an unhappy home? Yeah, those things can all be true. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God, God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth. Verse 21. Pleasing God as not only the goal of life, in general, but the goal of dealing with our anger and getting rid of it. I've given you here in the final pages of your uh, little booklet there two forms or two assignments that I use in counseling ministry. The first one kind of deals with your own heart. The second one deals with your behavior, as we've talked about both today. The first is a journaling form that you can use for your own self-counsel. It's also something that you might be able to share with a friend and have them think about the anger if you're able to get that on the table with him or her. Journaling, and it's a very simple, simple, very simple thing. You know, what happened? What are the situation? What did you say or do? What was the behavior? Came out of your mouth or your actions? Or it could be, what didn't you say that you should have said? Maybe you pulled away relationally. The third question is the main question. What were you wanting? What were you desiring? What were you living for? And that's the pay dirt. That's where we want to get to. What is it that I was wanting at that point? Because the most simple truth that I hope you'll leave leave with you today is uh, I want what I want. That's where the anger is coming from. And then the other one is just a study of Proverbs that has to do with a lot of the expressions of anger. It gives you a lot of those verses. Some of the con- these actually are embedded in the book as well, but I brought that out for, for our purposes today.